Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum everyone. Assalamu alaikum Sheikh. We have uh, Sheikh Salim Bimji with us. Alaikum assalam. How are you doing tonight? This evening I guess for you? Yeah, yeah for me 7pm for you early in the morning. Yeah, for, yeah uh, me just... Uh, <laughs> I can still hear the birds chirping outside in the morning here. So, <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah, thank you so much for accepting this invitation and being here with us. It's it's an honor to have you. Alhamdulillah, thank you very much for extending the invitation for, uh, for me today. It's great to be here with you. Of course, of course. So, Sheikhna, right now we're living in some very strange times. We have COVID, you have all the protests going on. I know you're in Canada. What's the situation over there in Canada? Is there anything? Obviously, it's not like the states right now, but what's going on? Yeah, no, Canada isn't obviously as um, the situation is not as I guess uh, intense as it is in in America. Um, you know, that isn't to say that Canada doesn't have its own racial discrimination problems. Obviously, we do have. Uh, you know, many parts of Canada are are battling with um, the the treatment, especially of African Canadians. Um, you know, they, they are unfortunately at the receiving end of racism in many parts of the world, and Canada is no exception to that. Um, but alhamdulillah, the protests, you know, we'd, we've had a lot of protests across the country, um, you know, obviously speaking out for, for uh, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, especially. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it is, a, it is a concern over here. Obviously, we don't have the same level of pro police brutality, um, but that isn't to say, again, that people of color are not racially profiled um, even just, you know, yesterday when I was watching Canadian news, they were talking about the fact that, you know, in many parts of Canada, African Canadians are much more likely to be stopped on the street and, uh, you know, racially profiled, asked for identification, what they're doing, why are they in a certain part of town. Um, so definitely racism is is here in Canada as well, unfortunately. Um, but again, not not to the extent that we see in other parts of the world, but it's definitely a a, a blemish on on all on all societies. I would say it's interesting here too. I was just watching the news before before we came on, and mm -hmm. there was an Aboriginal person speaking about all of the crimes against the Indigenous people here in Australia, right? So obviously, mm -hmm. again, it's the police brutality doesn't equal, you know, the state's police brutality and. There is a lot of racism here, and the the racism that the Aboriginal people experience are, is similar to the racism that an African American would experience over there. The, mm -hmm. for instance, the percentage that they're in prison is way more than than they are outside of prison in the normal population. Mm -hmm. um, they they don't have the the police killings though. Like the the yes. they have a few. They were mentioning a few where there mm -hmm. were a few people that were killed in custody, but nowhere near like the States. So mm. that's, that's a dynamic yeah. that's really bad. Yeah. yeah. I think obviously here in Canada, we have the indigenous, you know, the indigenous First Nations as well. And they've, uh, obviously they've suffered under the, you know, the Caucasians who came and colonized Canada. Um, you know, for that, you know, that period of time of them being stripped of their, of their natural religion, of their culture, of their identity, um, you know, children being uh, separated from their families, being put into what they call these residential schools run by the by the church for the most part. Um, so even they have suffered at the hands of, you know, the, of the system. Um, and they continue to suffer, unfortunately, as well. You know, they don't have adequate, you know, it's amazing because you look at the, the indigenous First Nations in Canada and they put them on these things called reservations, you know, like they, they ship them off or they, you know, they're, they're on their native territory, native land. 
um, but they don't have many of them till today don't have clean running water at home. They don't have, you know, heated homes. So you imagine you're living in minus 30, minus 40 temperatures and you don't have electricity, you don't have running water at home. So, I mean, we we have our own share of racism, I think, just like the African-Americans have been, you know, uh, subjugated in, in the States. Obviously, they're brought as, as slaves from Afri Africa and they've never really been given their rights. Um, in Canada, unfortunately, we have a similar situation with the with the First Nations, with the indigenous peoples of this land as well. So it's uh, still a long way to go for full equality for all in all, all Canadian citizens, at least I would say. I know one of the things with with Islam is we're supposed to look and find those who are oppressed and try to help them as much as we can. Uh, what do you think we can do from the situation that we're in, right? So Ali, we're in, I'm in Sydney, you're in, in Toronto, or not Toronto, you're in Canada, but um, yes. we're not there in the States and we don't have power in the States, but what, what can we do to kind of shed light on this situation? Mm. Yeah, good question. So, yeah, obviously, as you said, you know, we're, we're thousands of kilometers, miles away from the epicenter of where this, uh, you know, where at least this uh, specific issue is, has, has, is taking place and unwinding. Um, but I think even though we're far away, you know, I, I think at the minimal, I think what we can do is to educate our own communities, right? Educate our families first and foremost about, um, you know, from our perspective as Muslims, um, what is the Islamic stance about, uh, you know, racial supremacy? What does the Quran speak about it? Because, you know, obviously education begins from home. And if we have, you know, our, our spouse, if we have children, it's, I think it's extremely important for us to educate our children from a very young age that, you know, we don't tolerate any kind of racial uh, abuses, racial slurs, that, you know, we don't uh, stereotype people when we're walking out or we're in the park and we see somebody of a different color or different ethnicity or even different religion, really, for that matter, that we teach our children from a young age that, you know, God, Allah has made everybody different, different colors, different shades. Um, and, you know, us being whatever color our skin is, that we don't hold any superiority over anybody else. And then obviously from there, I think our next goal should be our community's own education, our faith community, right? The Muslims of our, of our community, the centers that we frequent. Um, <clears throat> you know, many times you can have, you'll have scholars who will speak hours about, you know, many other topics in Islam, about, you know, picking apart the finer points on, you know, praying or fasting, which are all important, but they don't talk about, you know, the, the, the aspect of, again, of, of discrimination, right? Drawing from the examples of the Quran about how Allah has told us so many times that he's created us in uh, various colors, various shades. Um, we don't even point to examples at the time of the Prophet and of the Imams of the Ahlul Bayt, peace be upon all of them, of their um, goals to integrate everybody within, within society, right? So you have so many examples of the Prophet interacting with people from let's say from Africa, from other communities that had come into Islam in Medina. Um, and, you know, with the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, we don't talk about the fact that, let's say from the 6th and 7th Imam onwards, you know, majority of the mothers of these Imams were, were dark-skinned women from Africa, you know, mm. to at least break that racial uh, bias within our community. So I think we have a lot that we can do in terms of education. Again, we're not on the ground to physically protest and go to the sit-ins and marches. Um, if in our local communities, if we're having, you know, protests at City Hall or, or what have you, I think we should have our presence there as, as Muslims. 
but I also I think at the same time, education goes, a, a, I think, a huge way in making sure that our next generation, you know, they don't pick up those biases that are around them in the society. Yeah, that's very important. I love those points that you mentioned, right? So definitely there's, we could see in the time of the Prophet, the Prophet interacted with people in all different races and he didn't, there was no, you know, he didn't distinguish one race over the other. And Correct, uh, yeah. And I remember a, a lot of places I go to and I give lectures or I'll give classes about the life of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam or things of this nature. Uh, and the mm -hmm. imams of Ahlul Bayt Islam. And when I get to the lives of the imams, and I mention that, you know, some of their mothers were African, right? Mm. There's a good chance, yeah. you know, their their skin color is not white, right? They're, Correct. They're yeah. De <laughs> they're definitely darker. And yes. even there's even a hadith we have with Imam Jawad Islam where some people would make negative statements about how dark he was. Mm, right? Yeah. And so yeah. we see that, you know, there even even our living Imam, there's accounts that mm -hmm. his his mother might not be the um what's it called, Roman princess, but she might be from Africa. Right? So there's different mm -hmm. opinions there. Regardless, yes, it, does, like, yeah. it doesn't matter. But it's interesting yeah. that that these stereotypes exist when our own imams who we you know, we claim to follow most likely yes. don't fit within the that mold that we have in our mind for them. And I, I, it's mm -hmm. always interesting watching people's reactions to that. Where when, yeah, when you tell yeah. them, look, you know, many of the imam's mothers were black. They were African. So what, yeah. what you know, skin tone do you think the imam had? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, no, it's true. It, yeah. It's funny and to you see know, some people react, you know, in shock or negatively or, you know. Yes. Yeah, you know, and obviously we know that it's not uh, it's not recommended from our scholars to depict the, the the faces of the imams or the prophet, you know. Mm -hmm. But sometimes if you go to the shrine cities, if you go to Iraq or Iran, you'll see sometimes they'll draw these pictures of the twelve imams sitting together, but they all look kind of Caucasian or, yeah. or you know Aryan, the European, you know. <laughs> they look like Iranian qualities or some you know light skinned Arab qualities and characteristics. Yeah. Um, and it's it's just like what the Christian Church did, right? Where they drew Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes and white exactly. skin. And exactly. uh, I was just thinking the know, same you, thing, exactly. Yeah, you know, and so and and so those you know Christians they had this this picture of Jesus being this white man, um, you know. And so I think when we do that to the imams and and to the prophet also, when we draw those pictures depicting him in a certain way, it, it definitely does a disservice. Um, you know, A, we don't need to know, I don't think, what the imam or prophet looked like, you know, because obviously we're so separate from, from him now. We don't know, like, we don't have those ac accurate accounts. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, again, when you do portray them, then if you want to be honest to them, then you need to trace that lineage and find out, you know, who their mothers were, what their background was, and then depict them in the light of, you know, the, the mixing of different genes, obviously. And, and that's very difficult to do for people today. We don't, I don't think we have those accurate accounts of what the mothers of the imams look like that we would be able to you know draw a picture of what they of, of you know what shade of color they were but again as allah tells us in the quran right when he says that we've created you in different colors um then that that should be enough for us that you know um you know there's no greatness over of an arab over a non-arab or a black over you know whatever the case may be we're all we're all you know um 
equal in the sight of God in that way. And it's really only the taqwa, that consciousness of God and that, you know, that active working towards proximity of God that should give us that edge up over another human being. That's good. That's good. So I know one thing that you've done is you have worked with people in prison and you've, you've written letters to people. I remember Mm -hmm. I was in contact with you for some time about that. Okay. Um, so this is this is an interesting point. I wanted to to move over and, and talk about that because unfortunately, you know, one of the forms of oppression that that African Americans face and also indigenous people around the world is that they're incarcerated at higher rates and the sentences that are given to them are usually longer and mm. and the chances of them getting paroled is less. So this mm. institutionalized racism, you know, all across the board equates yes. to large portions of African Americans being in prison. And Correct. In the prison system, a lot of people do um, find religion, right? So there's, there was a, he's still alive, there's a, a scholar by the name of Abdul Alim Musa, Sunni scholar in the States, mm. I don't know if you know him. Um, yeah. He... He says that there's three different places where you should concentrate your tablik on. So he's pretty successful in tablik, and he mm-hmm. he mentions these three places. He says one of them is the universities. Why? Because when it, when someone goes to university, they're they're um, confronted with new ideas and they they start thinking about things. And if you could provide answers to those questions that are now formulating in their mind, they might gravitate mm-hmm. towards Islam. Second okay. is going to Poor areas. Why? Because mm-hmm. these people are looking for an escape. They're looking for something to save them. They're they're on the look for for something different, and you c- it's impossible mm-hmm. to provide that for them. And third is prison. Why? Because people mm-hmm. are at rock bottom. People have entered a state that they do not want to be in. They realize that you know the way they were living their life, the mistakes that they've na- they've made led them to the worst possible outcome right now and there's nowhere but up from there right so Mm. if you provide them with an opportunity to do toba and to have you know give give them an inner sense of peace they'll definitely grab at that right and Mm. i know a lot of people do convert when they're in prison so i saw that firsthand i've you know Mm. i met many people in prison who have converted to islam um and I hear about it, you know, from many other people who are in contact. So I was wondering what experiences you've had with uh, yeah. helping with people in prison and writing letters and things of that nature. Sure. Yeah, so uh, when I returned back um, from Iran for my studies, I worked with a nonprofit charity here in town. I, I live in a city called Kitchener. We're about an hour west of Toronto. Um, and one of the projects of this organization was um, an outreach to uh, prisoners, Um mostly in, in, in America, obviously, but also within some limited scope within Canada. Um, and so for about two to three years, in addition to other, um, you know, ac- activity as I was involved with was uh, we had a very active prison um, um, educational, pro- you know, educational project, also like a pen pal, like a mentorship, you know, keeping in touch with the brothers. Um, so probably within that couple of years, I got I got to know probably hundreds hundreds of brothers and some sisters as well who are incarcerated in, in America particularly. 
Um, you know, it, and it wasn't just shipping a book over to them and, you know, reading it, you know, letting them read it. But it was really we got to a point where um, we would get prisoners who would call us on a, on a you know, monthly basis if they had questions, they had concerns, challenges that they were going through in life. Um, you know, letters, obviously, the, the letters are always beautiful because, um, you know, you've you got brothers and sisters who are opening up their hearts, right? Uh, people who were formerly gangbangers, who were drug dealers, who were murderers in, in case of some of the brothers that we were in touch with. Um, and, you know, they came to Islam and, you know, obviously they've got, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years life in prison. Um, but to see them open up, to come, come to Islam, to open up and to... Um, you know, kind of not not share their experience as in a form of gloating, obviously, and boasting about it, but just really, I guess, to to uh, get that that um, that grief off of their shoulders and to open up and just to kind of you know move move forward with in life. Um, but you know, it, it was beautiful because you really uh, you really develop uh, like a a, clo a close brotherhood, I would say, with with these people who write in, right? Because it's not just. Uh, it's not. It's a. It's. I mean, it's a person we've never met, obviously, and and spoken to, but they're not anonymous at that point in time because you've developed such a close relationship, writing back and forth, and you know they're sharing things about their life with you, um, and you know, alhamdulillah, it was it was a great experience in the sense that we're able to um, connect with brothers who a maybe were not Muslims at one time, and through our writing with them and correspondence, through sending books, and obviously by them talking to other brothers. Who are incarcerated with them about Islam that they came to the religion um, and then sometimes there were brothers who had been Muslims for 10 15 20 years right and they, they've been locked up that whole time um, and to kind of be in touch with them it, it was um, it's obviously heartwarming and it's you know it's it's just um, it's a great experience really I guess I would say and uh, it's, it's the probably the least that we can do I would say for them you know Many of the times, the brothers, you know, they're not looking for money, you know, uh, they're not looking for anything like that. They're just thirsty for knowledge. And, uh, you know, when we're kind of on the so-called outside, um, you know, and we have all this technology, we've got internet, we've got thousands of books at our disposal. We take it for granted, right, that we can just go online and Google a book and read it or go on Amazon and buy the book or whatever or go to the public library and, you know, you got brothers who are there for, you know, 25 to life, right? And they don't have that that luxury. Um, and so to provide them just something as simple as a book, right, uh, or a magazine or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, they're just that that companionship, right, that they know that there's somebody there that they can talk to is, uh, it's just a rewarding experience as well, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I know when I was in prison that there was a mm. brother in Reno. His name is Ali Tazarvi. Okay. He, pa he passed away. May Allah have mercy mm. on us and right. bless him, inshallah. But I remember God, that... He would send letters to a few of the inmates that that were in there with me, and he, and to myself as well. And mm -hmm. same thing, you know, he created that friendship with us, and mm -hmm. he was there to, to answer questions. So any question we had, he would research and he would write these mm -hmm. very detailed, long responses—four pages, five pages, right—of mm -hmm. of responses. Wow. And he would send books and. Like the amount of knowledge that we gained from him at that period in time mm. was amazing. Like any, yeah. anything that we knew about Islam and any you know ritual that we were performing was only because he, he taught it to us. And he was mm. just a normal person in Reno who yeah. lived a few hours wow. away from the prison and you know, 
was just dedicating his time to do that. And it helped us mm-hmm. so much. Like, you know, only Allah knows how much that that helped mm-hmm. us. Like the books, we would sit there reading these books all day long. And then we'd have a group mm-hmm. and we'd discuss them and we'd we'd go back and forth. And this was an amazing, amazing opportunity that we had because of these letters that he was sending. I'm sure that all the people that you were writing had similar experiences. And after I was released, I started writing some people as well. I haven't in a long time, but it's definitely, as you said, it's the least we could do. It's not, it's not that yeah. hard. It just takes a little bit of time. No. And now you can email. That's right. Yeah. And now yeah. most places you can email. So it's, it's, you don't even have to get a pen and paper and try to find a mail. That's right. A mail, a mail. <laughs> I don't even know how to mail something right now. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it's, it's, so it's it's a lot easier than we than we actually think, and you know what? It, this is this is motivating me to try to get back into it. You know, I think it's yeah. it's important, definitely. Now I know you do a lot of translations. Did you have you translated books and sent it to to people in prison as well, or or written books for them? Like, or is this the books that you send just you know you get them from somewhere else? How does that work? Yeah, so most of the books that we used to send to them were, um, so this is back in the early 2000s, so most of them were books published by, let's say, Ansarian Publications mm-hmm. from from Iran um, and other local publishers within North America. Um, so initially, because this is really back early in the days when I returned back from Iran, um, I wasn't into the, I wasn't really fully into writing and translating at that point in time. So we were kind of just taking the knowledge that was already available and passing it over to the brothers. Yeah, that's cool. um, you know, yeah. but I mean, at the, definitely back at that time, and even till today, my thought had always been to, um, if I was able to get back into that correspondence with the brothers, was re- would really be to work on manuals that they need for their own kind of spiritual survival in, in that system. Yeah. Um, but I think definitely there's brothers who are out there who, um, you know, have been in the system and have come out of it and have either gone to, you know, further studies in Iran, let's say, or elsewhere. Um, or who have a good insight on, on life behind bars, I think who, who would probably be better in a better position to do that. Uh, but I think it's important that, you know, I mean, it's great to send books to them written by, you know, books on philosophy and, you know, tafsir of Quran and akhlaq and ideology. But I think also there's definitely a, a need to address maybe challenges, like especially on the, at the level of fiqh, of jurisprudence, of how do you live as a practicing Muslim in prison, because obviously you have issues of tahara, you have issues of food, you have issues of so many issues that, you know, we deal with on a regular basis. But, you know, when when you're kind of outside of the, the system, you, you have, we have avenues where we can, you know, we can change what we're in. You know, if we go to a restaurant, if something's not halal, we can obviously, you know, make changes. But when you're in that system, um, then obviously you need to be able to ne- figure out how do you follow Islam faithfully in that you know, while while you're in those conditions. So um, yeah, uh, right now we we just were sorry. Go ahead. No, I remember it's true. I remember um, first month of Ramadan when I was in prison. Mm. Uh, you were saying, okay. and I remember the they wouldn't take us for sahar. Obviously, like okay. They wouldn't open the kitchen early, early in the morning for us, <laughs> which is, I mean, obviously they're not going to do that. So yeah. I remember the uh, one of the groups of the Muslims, there was a few, a couple of groups of Muslims there. Um, okay. There was a group of Sunni brothers and there was a group of Shia brothers, but okay. we weren't at war with each other or fighting with each other. Mm-hmm. It's just because of differences in how we practice the religion. We weren't, 
one group. You know, we, we were two uh -huh. groups, which, you know, I don't know. Probably would have been better if we were one group, but we weren't. Now, mm. at, that, at that time, the Sunnis had accepted that, all right, because they're not going to let us go for Sahar, mm. they said they, they'll take us at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. or whenever it is. We could eat mm. breakfast at that time and then just fast the rest of the day, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were like, come on, man. Like, in the prison we're in, you could get food from the commissary. And, uh -huh. you know, there's, we, you know some, some of us had some money, so we'd buy it for you. If you don't have money, we'll buy you food for the month. Mm -hmm. Like, you could eat. You okay. just got to wake up and eat in your, in your cell. <laughs> like, it's not that yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make yourself some noodles or something. Like, you, you'll eat. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. I remember, you're right. Like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of issues that people face. Yeah. Thick issues. So I know definitely Tahar is an issue. And mm. ghusl, for instance, so let's say you're on lockdown and you can't go to the showers. How are you going to do ghusl? Yeah. So there's, yeah. there's definitely issues that it would be good to know how to respond to them. Because I know when I was in prison, I didn't know any of the details of fiqh. I just had the, the basics, if that. And even when, yeah. when, I, when I got out of prison, I realized you know, the importance of ahkam and, and really performing the prayer and, and all of the prerequisites yeah. of the prayer correctly and, and all of that. Like we, I yeah, did what yeah. I knew at the time, but yes. definitely when I got out there, you know, I was, I became aware of many rulings that I just wasn't aware of before. Mm. So yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you give that, you, you give a brother like the Risala of the Marja, you know, like you look at like an 800 page book and like really 90% of that doesn't apply to him. Like he doesn't yeah. need to about fishing, about hunting, about business, you know, um, he's just busy just trying to, you know, survive in that, in that system and just worship Allah, right? So exactly. um, I think, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's important that somebody needs to really sit down and, you know, um, put together, you know, uh, Islamic laws manual for people who are incarcerated because, again, there, there are situations unique. Um, like, you know, what if you're on, like, like you said, like, what if you're on lockdown and you have, you don't even know what time it is this, 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 as an extreme example, right? Yeah, yeah. How are you going to pray? Right? When, you're, when um, you're in the hole, you don't know what time it is. They don't tell you. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so I think it's, uh, again, you know, because unfortunately the way that these systems are, you know, the obviously the population of the prisons are just increasing. And in, in America, at least, it's a big business, right? You watch mm -hmm. these documentaries online about how the privatization of the American prison system. So it's a money-making industry. And they're just going to come in and round up people, right? If, you know, I mean, there's no there's no such thing as innocent until proven guilty, I don't think, anymore. No. You know, so as long as prisons prisons exist and as long as injustice exists that, uh, you know, people will be incarcerated, you know, we have to obviously recognize that that's a, a segment of the Muslim community that we need to really provide the resources to as well, I think. 100%, 100%. Yeah. So, yeah. So you uh, you weren't translating at that time then. So when when did you start no. getting into translation? I started translating myself mm. in Qom. So what I would do okay. from the beginning, where I barely knew mm. the language, I would, <laughs> as as part of my study, you know, uh, routine, I would translate mm. the few pages of the chapter that we were going over in class. Right, and then okay. well, I kept it for myself. I didn't publish those translations because they weren't of the best quality. But um, okay, but that's that's one of the things. So I started getting used to translating texts early, early mm -hmm. on in my studies, and then as I okay. progressed in in my studies, 
I, I, you know, there's a high demand in Qom for mm -hmm. translations. And, yes. And alhamdulillah, the money was pretty good as well. So, because mm -hmm. they would give you like American equivalent dollars mm -hmm. per page, right? Okay. Instead of like some normal Toman salary that you'd get. So okay. It ended up being like a pretty good source of income that you didn't have to spend mm -hmm. too much time on the day in. So it was like the perfect job for a student. Uh -huh. And you're doing something Islamic related as well. So I, yes. tr I tried yeah. doing that and um, I know my translations probably aren't, aren't to the quality of yours or some of the other brothers, no. but we do our best. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's, it's definitely very interesting. And I'm, I know like some WhatsApp groups that I'm, that I'm in and you're in the same groups as I am that I'm talking about. Like some of the brothers who are translating now, I see them come mm. up with like, well, how would you translate this term? And then everyone chimes mm. in and gives their opinion. And some of them are so yes. like ear funny philosophy. Like I don't, I don't even know what the word means in English. Like I know what it means in Arabic, but not in English. English. <laughs> like what is this word? <laughs> I've never seen it before. But yeah, like it's funny. Like it's good. But there's there's a whole style of translation. And maybe you could mm. uh, explain some of the books you've translated and some of like the method sure. you have with translation would be interesting. Yeah. So I think the first book I probably translated, um, actually I, I was in Qum at the time, it was probably about two years after I got to Iran, so after finishing the Persian studies and getting into into the classes. So it was a very, it was a simplified Islamic laws for youth uh, from Ayatollah Sistani's Fatawa. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a very basic, plain uh, Islamic laws manual, maybe about 120 pages, just of the basic laws that a young man or woman would need to know coming in to uh, when they're you know, reaching the age of maturity. Um, and then from there, so that was kind of my first um, uh, experience of translation. Um, so obviously I knew English. I knew I, I had learned Persian at that time. But, you know, at that, obviously at that time, my English wasn't the best. Um, you know, you go to the public school system, but they're not teaching you to become like an author or a writer, right? You're just learning enough English to have a conversation and work kind of a thing. Yeah, I was the same, um, like. I barely, yeah. I barely graduated high school. Like barely. I think I had like uh, a one point two GPA or something. Like like almost as low okay. as you could you could get. And I graduated, and then then I got locked up. And then after I got locked mm -hmm. up, I went. You know, shortly thereafter, I went to Hausa. So my okay. English was, you know, even even to the extent where. You know, you, you would have studied. I didn't even study yes. that much. Like, it was, uh -huh. it was bad. And, uh -huh. and I remember, I remember that, like, you know, translating, like, I understood the Farsi. I understood the Arabic. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. like, the English, it's like, I'm sure it's not to that level, that high level. And I don't know, but mm. throughout the house, throughout the house of process, I feel my English got a lot better. Like, through studying Arabic mm -hmm. grammar, I learned English grammar. Okay. Right, so like uh -huh. I, because I'd always say, huh, how do we do what, what do we do with that in English? What's a mafool in English? In English? Hmm. And then you'd look into it <laughs> and you figure it out, right? And Yes, yeah. And then Balaga the same way. So like there's mm -hmm. that there's a little book um where I remember reading it where you change the word in the sentence, like you change the placement of the word and it gives emphasis. So like Iyakanaho okay. gives emphasis. Mm -hmm. Then I remember a sentence in English. Home is the sailor, or the sailor is home. Same, same mm -hmm. words, 
But if you say home is yes. a sailor, home is emphasized. So you switch switch mm -hmm. the wording down, and it and it gives. So I I picked up all these things in while I was studying another language. I improved my own. Mm. And then when English. I got when I got back to um, um, Australia, so I went to uni here. Mm -hmm. So okay, when, when I when I left home and eventually made my way down here to Australia, I remember mm. going into my my degree is psychology you have to write a lot of essays and a lot of you know reports and i was nervous <laughs> that what if my english you know i i barely uh -huh. passed high school how am i gonna cope <laughs> uh -huh. and i yeah. remember i started getting like really really high grades uh mm -hmm. in, on my papers and really good comments from the teachers i was like oh wow i guess mm -hmm. my english isn't that bad and and i, I mm -hmm. learned more throughout uni how to write reports and all that but it's interesting okay. that even though you're in the Hausa and you're not concentrating on English, you pick it up and yes, your terminology yeah. starts to increase your, you know, the, the lingo that you use for the different topics that you're, that you're covering start to improve. Obviously not yeah. as, as good as the brothers who've been there for much longer and have much deeper knowledge than myself, but I thought it was mm -hmm. amazing, but I wonder if your experience yeah. is similar. Yeah, I think so because, like you said, right? I mean, especially when um, you're coming from a, from a Western country, so your mind is in English, right? You think in English, you dream in English, you you sleep in English. So you know, when you're studying, you know, you're studying the text in Arabic or Farsi, you're you're almost subconsciously translating that into English, right? Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, that you'll come across a word or a theme or a passage, and you'll you'll obviously you you'll understand it in the native language but then you want to kind of also understand it in english you may look up the word online or in a dictionary and i think that way it's um probably even myself i i would i would say i probably develop my own english vocabulary deeper by doing that by reading texts in in per persian and arabic and then you're looking okay well what is the english equivalent of that particular word or that that concept within you know within the quran or within the hadith or within the supplications and you end up looking it up if you don't have a under you know a deeper understanding, and so you end up building your own English vocabulary as well. I would say at the same time. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. If so, and then I obviously, know, I remember you, one book you had, the Tafsir of Surah Hujurat. I, I read that. I, yes. I liked that a lot. That was a good one. And, okay. Um, you had. There's many books you've had. What What else have you translated? Yeah. So Alhamdulillah, I've, I've translated about 50 books into English now. Um, the Surah Hujurat, Alhamdulillah, I, actually, I remember that one vividly. This was like, I think 2003, I translated that book. Um, and I started it like the first day of the month of Ramadan. Okay. And literally, it took me about 20 days to translate that 300 pages. Wow. Um, so it's kind of going gung-ho, you know, every day I go into the office in Ramadan and sit down in front of the computer and, you know, just kind of hash that book out. So within about 20, I think it definitely by before the end of the month, we completed the translation of that book. That's amazing. Um, Alhamdulillah, is, uh, is, I think, well-received. It's Again, it's, you know, what we talked about in the beginning about racial superiority and discrimination mm. um, for brothers and sisters who are watching, you know, watching this. I mean, if you want to really know the Islamic stance on, on racial superiority, you need to go to Surah Al-Hujurat, right? Especially verse number 13, where Allah tells us that, you know, it talks about about the fact that there is no greatness of, uh, you know, the, in terms of the racial uh, divide that we have right now. Um, but Alhamdulillah, in addition to that, I've done quite a few other books. I, I really like to focus on the Quran because, you know, it, obviously the Quran is our, our guidebook for life. Um, and unfortunately, as, as believers, we don't have a good connection with the Quran. You know, we read the Arabic in Ramadan as we always do. 
Um, some of us may go deeper to pick up a translation, but we still haven't obviously got to that level of knowing the Quran and being intimate with the Book of Allah. Mm. Um, so I began a process of doing some other books in the Quran. Um, I, I know you've also done some books of Ayatul Jafar Subhani of the Quran. I think Suratul Munafiqun you've translated yeah, that's right. that's the commentary right. of, right? Um, so I went and I did uh, two volumes from Ayatollah Nasa Makarim's Tafsir Namune, the mm-hmm. 28th volume Tafsir he did. So yeah. I translated the 20, um, the 29th Juz of the Quran, so Surah Al-Mulk to Mursalat. Um, and then I also had did, done, uh, so Ayatollah Makarim has a 10-volume uh, thematic commentary, a subject-wise commentary of Quran. So I translated volume one, which is just about the possibilities of knowing God. Is mm-hmm. it possible to have this knowledge and ma'rifat of Allah? Um, and when it, did you it's really deep. That? So that one was like 2007, I think. 2007, yeah. 2008, it came out. Um, it was published by an organization in London, England, in the UK. Mm. Um, so that was a really good book because you know it's. Um, I don't think it's available online. I'll take a look. I'll send you the link if I can find it. Mm. Um, but he talks about the entire possibility of knowing God, yep. right? Um, and especially he talks about the fact in, in today's perspective with so much propaganda and misinformation and mass media out there that is it even possible for the average you know person walking on the street to know who Allah is, know who God is from the Islamic perspective. Yes, I, did, uh, I actually did a lecture series off of one of the parts of that, that volume. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. It's a nice. very interesting yeah. book. Okay. I wish I would have so, yeah. English, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've done some books in Quran. We've done some books in Akhlaq. Um, we translated a book called Secrets of the Hajj, uh, which looks at the kind of the esoteric, the Irfani spiritual aspect of Hajj. You know, which which till today, um, I haven't seen much available in English. You know, you have books of people who have gone for Hajj and written like their memoirs, mm-hmm. right? But I mean, when... Uh, when we my when my wife and I were going for Hajj with my parents, this is back in two thousand and one, I believe it was. Um, the only book we had available on the kind of the philosophy or spiritual aspect of Hajj was Ali Shariati's Hajj, his you know kind of the memoirs that he had he had written. Um, you know, so we read that because that was the only thing available in English at the time. But then you go to Hajj and you're looking at Hajj from his perspective, right? And he did Hajj maybe in the fifties or sixties and a different culture, a different time, and all that. Um, so when we actually when I came back from Hajj, I found this book in my library, right? It was just kind of nestled in there with all the other books. And it, it had a profound impact when I returned from Hajj. And I'm like, you know, because he was looking at the, the scholars, Ayatollah Madahiri, one of the teachers of Akhlaq in Isfahan. Mm. Um, and he was looking at the Hajj not from a personal perspective, but from the Quran and Hadith, mm-hmm. right? So it was like, what does the, you know, what, what what is the Hadith perspective on experiencing Hajj about? What is the Quran talking about in terms of experiencing, you know, the, the greatness of Allah and the Hajj? Um, and so we decided to translate that because it was, the, at, at that time again, there was nothing in English that would give the community a, a, a direct look at the Hajj and what they should try to, you know, what they should be looking to emulate, you know. Mm. Um so alhamdulillah, we were able to release that. And um, so throughout the years, you know, Quran, we've done many tafsir books, akhlaq books, um, and other other little things along the way. And alhamdulillah, now that I've sort of had, a, you know, about 18 to 20 years of, of translation experience, we started writing our own books now in, in English. Okay. Right. So I, I did a I did an in-depth book on Salat al-Ghufayla. Nice. It is two rakat. Prayer between Maghrib and Isha, right? Mm. Um, so I remember one time, you know, we obviously you learn as a when you're in the house as a student, you learn about all the recommended prayers and acts of worship. 
So we used to pray this two rakat prayer between Maghrib and Isha, and I, I never really thought much about it. Like the Maraja, the Mujtahid says it's mustahab, is recommended. So we used to do it. And then about maybe seven years ago, um, a thought crossed my mind that why, why do we pray this prayer, right? Like, what's the significance of it? Why do we recite the dhikr of Yunus, Nabi Yunus, peace be upon him, Prophet Jonah, right? And I'm looking at all my books in my library, looking online, and I'm like, nobody's written uh, a sort of a review or a commentary of this prayer, mm. right? If it's so important, right, that the, every marja taklid today and every risala, they always say that this is a recommended prayer, why do we not have anything on this? Where did it come from? Who taught it to us? Was it one of the imams? Was it the prophet? You know, was it just a scholar who came up with it? Um, so I basically sat down and said, you know what, if nobody's written it, I'm, I'm going to start doing work on it. Nice. So I spent maybe two to three years researching it yeah. um, and basically put together a book of about 150, 160 pages where I analyzed where the where the source of it came from. Um, and then we looked at the commentaries of different scholars of Nabi Yunus and his story, his journey through, you know, Nainawa and being put into the ocean in the belly of the whale and coming out and, and all of the kind of life experiences that he faced. That's amazing. So I'm, I'm actually giving a lecture this Friday called uh, oh, really? called Nabi Yunus and the Whale of Regret. I'm, I'm talking about the story. So I was just going over that Wait. story. Your book would be okay. perfect for it. <laughs> so I'll, <laughs> I'll this have to send you the PDF then. <laughs> <laughs> but that's amazing. You know, that's amazing. Yeah. I love that. So I love that you wrote it yourself too. Like you said, mm. you, because I think translations are great. Like I'm all for translations, obviously. I still translate till today. But I think books that we write ourselves just have... Mm -hmm. They're more engaging for the audience that we're writing for. Like I think yeah. there's, there's a disconnect when when it's translated. Like there's the receptor language and the receiver language. There's always going to be a disconnect, and the culture Correct. will always yeah. be a disconnect as well. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I face it actually in one one other book. I'll just tell you about really briefly mm -hmm. is uh, I translated a book called Moral Management. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, what ended up happening is. Um, for about eight years, I had kind of taken myself out of Islamic work. I was working in the corporate sector in Canada. Um, and so, you know, my work, I was working with obviously non-Muslims, whoever is working with the, in, in the company. It was a large company. We had about 20,000 employees across the globe. Um, and so, you know, um, being, I, was, I wasn't in a, in a managerial position, but I had sometimes an opportunity to lead a small team. So I was looking, you know, I went to the public library in my city and I found a book called Moses on Management, mm. right? So the, a rabbi had taken the example of Moses and Aaron from the Old Testament and kind of put a new spin on how you can use the example of, of Musa and Harun, peace be upon them both, in contemporary management. So I was like, okay, that's interesting, right? Um, mm. Then I went to the library, I found some books, I found one on Christianity and how they look at, the, at Jesus and his disciples, of how being how you can use their role in, in contemporary management and, and administrative principles. Mm. And then again I found a book on Buddhism and all, finding all of these religions and I'm looking around and I'm like I'm I'm saying to myself, well we Muslims claim that Islam is perfect. It has all the teachings. So where is the Quran on management? Right? Where is the the Prophet and his Ahlul Bayt's teachings on how to manage a society or a community or a business or an organization. Mm. And again, I didn't find anything in English from the perspective of the teachings of the Ahlul Bayt. So Alhamdulillah, we had gone to Iran, I think, just around that time for Ziyara. And I picked up a book in Farsi on the topic. And it, it fit exactly what I was what I was thinking about, you know. And so 
I, I read the book a couple of times cover to cover because usually the way I, I will I will translate is I will I'll try to look for topics that are not available in English. I don't want to recreate you know re, you know uh, recreate the boat again. Um, so if I find a topic is lacking, then I will seek out if there is a lot of already literature available that I can translate. If not, then I obviously write. Um, but for management, I couldn't find anything, so I said, "Let me translate this book." So read it over a few times, and the the principles were were you know spot on. But obviously, because it was written by an Iranian scholar, it was looking at Iranian bureaucracy, mm. and and you know how Iranian bureaucracy can be. <laughs> it's, it has something to be desired, right? So <laughs> I looked at like great, great. You know, the Hadith are beautiful, the Ayat to the Quran are spot on, but the examples given are. Eastern life. Yeah. So I translated the book and then I had to make sure that I re reworded portions which would make sense to a Western reader, right? Based mm -hmm. on our systems, our, you know, the so-called democratic system, or there's, you know, there's uh, the, at least some order and process and, and, and things that happen. Um, and so this book came out called Moral Management, which basically has, you know, um, the keys from the Quran and the Prophet and the Ahlul Bayt on how to manage your, your personal life your non-profit charity, your, you know, if you're a CEO for a massive major company, it has all the guidance in it. Yeah. And I, I remember giving it to my manager at work. Um, so she, one of our managers, she was a Christian woman from Jamaica originally. And I remember giving her the book as a gift one day. I just gave it to her and I said, here's a translation I produced, you know, um, and you're in an administrative, you know, managerial position, you're a director. So you know, maybe you'll benefit from it. And I just left it at that, right? It's my kind of my form of tabligh at that time in the company. <laughs> um, and so a few months later, we're, you know, I was uh, in the office and we just kind of, you know, passed our, our, our paths crossed in, in, the, in the hallway. And she stopped me and she's like, every day I read a page of the book and I just sit and think about it. Or every week I read a page of the book. Mm. And subhanAllah, she actually had mem pretty much memorized the hadith in English from Imam Ali Islam about management. Yeah. And so she's like, I've read this and now I'm trying to implement this in my, um, my model of management within the company. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it shows us that, you know, you don't, you know, you can do tabligh anywhere. You don't have to have this this clothing on to do tabligh. <laughs> you could be in a jeans and a t-shirt at work and you can give somebody something, not necessarily a book, but some guidance about what Islam says. Um, and if, if, if it impacts the heart, you know, um, she didn't convert to Islam, but that wasn't my goal. But now at least the seed has been put in her heart, you know, about about Islam, about the Prophet, about the Ahlul Bayt, about how our religion is not just praying, fasting, all of these actions but it has it has actually at, at the core of it it has the way to to guide society mm -hmm. right and that's what we don't appreciate as muslims a lot of times is that we think okay in in order to be successful i have to go to stephen covey and be highly successful and i have to look at this person and no the prophet and the ahlul bayt gave us you know how to be successful how to be a leader how to be a guide um, we just have to get those teachings right, and and I think a lot of them are not in English yet, and so that's been one of my goals. You know, whatever little limited capacity um, that I can is to take those jewels that are not in English and and make them available to to the you know to the to this new community new the the new community of uh, of young men and women that are you know professionals and working out there in the field. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. May Allah keep, continue to give you that tawfiq, mashallah. Thank you. It's really good Thank and you. beneficial material that you have. I know a lot of it's available on uh, alislam.org, a lot of your old Correct. translations. Yeah. Um, yes. What kind of, where do we find the other one? You mentioned a UK um, 
publishing one. Was that ICAST or was that somewhere else? Or? No, th this is a group called uh, the World Federation. World Federation. Uh, yeah, world-federation.org. So they have an Islamic education department. Um, so on their website, you'll find a link some some of the books that I published. Yep. Um, and I've also, since I've been back, I've, uh, I've pretty much established three different organizations for Islamic work in Canada that I'm involved with. Mm -hmm. um, one is called Al-Fatah Al-Mubin Publications. Yep. Um, and so I'll, I'll send you the links if you want to maybe you know share them with the viewers later on. Yeah, yeah I'll put them in the so, description. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically, we use that kind of organization to put out all the translations, like the the you know for free all the articles and books that we work on. Mm. Um, and then I also have a, a business which is the Islamic Publishing House. Yep. So that's where we do a lot of the um, kind of the you know creation of books for myself and for other authors and scholars will come to me and they'll want to publish their work. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll help them with the cover design, with the text layout, with editing, uh, you know, the copy editing of their book and then publishing and we let them do the, the global distribution, but we do pretty much everything, uh, including the printing of the books for them. Yeah. Um, and then we also launched an organization a few years ago called the Qayyim Institute. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, and actually, it's, it's an acronym that stands for the Quran and Ahlul Bayt Inspired Media. Wow. So Q-A-I-M. Nice. Right? And so the goal of that is to um, take the teachings of the Quran and the Ahlul Bayt, the, you know, the two weighty things, mm -hmm. and basically give them out to society in, in form of media, multimedia, right? video, um, like the YouTube videos that we engage with, podcasts that I've been starting kind of on and off over the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, so again, you know, we're trying to branch out because we realize that we live in a digital age where a lot of people don't like to read. We don't have time to read, right? We're commuting to work. Um, you can't be driving in your car and, and read a book at the same time, but you can be streaming a video or a podcast. Um, and so we realize, why don't we take that same knowledge that's in the books that are written by our scholars? And rather than just putting it in print form, why don't we make podcasts about them, right? Read the book mm -hmm. out or read excerpts or, 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 or summaries of it and mm -hmm. also make videos for, you know, for younger, for the younger generation. Um, for a lot of the satellite TV stations out there are looking for English content. So we try to package that same information that we would in a book, but put it in a video format and allow them to pick it off of line, pick it, you know, offline and to replay it to, to a global audience. Yeah, and obviously I've noticed here, your setup is amazing. Like you always have the best quality stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not. I mean, it's it's not my doing. It's something that's all the donors that we have. May Allah reward them. You know, sure. everything from the camera that I'm using right now to the computer to the lights is all donated by by brothers and sisters in Canada in North America who who feel passionate about again the same. You know, they have the same vision. They don't. They don't have the. They don't have the the, the ability to produce content. But Alhamdulillah, Allah has given them money. And so they just allow that to trickle down to us so we can have the equipment to try mm -hmm. to put out the best quality product out there. So may Allah reward all the donors who have given everything from a dollar up to, you know, whatever they've given for, for the love of Allah. Alhamdulillah. That's great. That's great. I've been, I've been trying my best with uh, this uh, tech, technological side myself. <laughs> yes. Just, just basically, like I've just started, so... My quality is nowhere mm. near yours, obviously. No. <laughs> like at the there's a, I work at a school and they have a green screen, so I've been playing, uh -huh. with, playing with that recently and okay. learning Adobe Premiere and trying to figure out how to edit videos and been doing all kinds uh -huh. of things. But it's a work in progress, obviously. But it's interesting. Yeah. I enjoy it actually. Like I enjoy, mm. I enjoy watching some tutorial on, on you know some special effect and then trying it out myself and. 
you know, mm-hmm. le- learning little tricks here and there. I think it's really, it's really an interesting uh, field to get into. But obviously, yes. that's one side of it. The content is what's more important, you know. Correct. And, yeah. And I, the exact reason that you mentioned with regards to the podcast is what what we're doing right now. It's because I figure, mm. you know, when I drive in the car, I like to listen to something. And I was thinking, yeah. you know, a lot of people are like this. A lot of people are commuting or mm. to and from work and they're always in a position where they're listening to something. Why not give yeah. them why not give them something to listen to that could be beneficial for them, that they could be inspired to become more religious or inspired to mm. improve their life in some way, instead of just the normal garbage that people listen to all the time. <laughs> so yeah, definitely. The, you know, that was yeah. that was the thought behind this. So I haven't mm. I haven't seen you in a while. Last time I saw you was here in Sydney. How was your trip? That's out right. Here? Yeah, I'm not, like, I didn't experience. talk to you after you left, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's um, you know, traveling is obviously there's a benefit. The Quran talks about traveling. It's mm. it's it's great to go to a new country and and you know meet old faces. <laughs> not that you're old, you're you're, you're still young, <laughs> uh, but to meet new faces that you've never you know that you've never met before. To meet to see communities, mm. um, you know, definitely when you travel, um, you definitely realize that the challenges that you face at home. They're not unique to you, you know. Mm. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of the same challenges that the Canadian Shia Muslim youth are facing here in Toronto or in anywhere in Canada are the same that the brothers and sisters in Sydney are facing. Um, just 14 hours ahead of us, really. <laughs> you have the problems. Yeah, yeah. We, we get it first. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, you get it first, and then we catch on a, few, a little mm-hmm. bit later. Um, but that's one of the benefits of traveling is that obviously you get to meet, you know, uh, new faces. You get to meet, make new friends. Um, you realize that the challenges that you're facing at home are not that different than anybody either even in the even in the so-called east right in the muslim countries you know the problems that i face in canada are not as radically different as let's say what a youth in iran or maybe in uh in any of the arab or so-called muslim countries or let's say in pakistan or india or indonesia is facing um, we all are going through the same uphill battles of of trying to worship allah of of living within secular systems um, and, you know, so it, it, but it does definitely help us when we get to meet one another. And, you know, a lot of times, for example, you, we, we may travel, um, because of the position that we're in of being able to, you know, go and give, you know, guidance to communities. Um, but you also learn a lot, right? You pick up mm-hmm. best practices, you know, you see in, in some communities that they're doing things which nobody else does. Um, and I, I actually, I experienced that in Sydney and I, I tell brothers about that till today. Cause I remember when I was there for Muharram. Um, one of the things that the, one of the brothers was doing was that he would organize the majlis, I think, every night for the volunteers at the other centers. Right? Uh, I think that uh, Sayyid uh, Sibtain Kazmi, I believe, he was one of the brothers involved in this process. Yeah. And uh, it was beautiful because, you know, we never think about the volunteers who come mm-hmm. to the majlis and who are serving tea, who are cooking the food, who are helping with the car parking, that they miss the entire lecture, right? They're all busy on their feet, running around back and forth, not being able to partake in the majlis. Um, and what I saw in Sydney was how every night, or at least a couple nights, they had a, pro- a special program for the volunteers that they got a chance to sit and listen and other people served them, yep. right? Um, so I took that back with me, and I've told that to so many scholars here in Canada and community leaders that this, this is what they, they, they what they do, at least in this one community in Sydney. Mm. It's something that we need to replicate in, in in the big cities in Canada, right? Like like Toronto and many other places where you have hundreds of volunteers, and they miss the whole program because they're busy serving us. 
So we should have a program every evening or a couple nights a week in Muharram or in Ramadan for the volunteers. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, had I not... Yeah, the, yeah. The, it's the United Islamic Foundation that does that here, a group of okay. brothers. And they've been doing it the last, I think, five years now, five or six years they've wow. been doing it. And yeah, okay. sometimes they're the best programs. Yeah. Like I love attending those programs and mm. I would go to the normal harm program. So I remember I was doing a couple years back, I was doing one in uh, Granville, which is an area here in Sydney. And then mm. 20 minutes away from there, I'd do one in uh, like a second lecture in, um, mm. in Rockdale. And then after, okay. then after that, I'd go there. So we'd, we'd have three okay. programs, mashallah, in one night. Wow. Yeah. And it was amazing. And you're right. When, when, like for me, because at that time, I'm, I'm dead tired. I just gave two lectures. I don't mm. want to give another speech. I don't want to do anything. <laughs> I just want to yeah. benefit from, from the program, right? Because yeah, exactly. I, don't, I don't know how it is for you. But for me, when I'm giving a lecture, I mean, it's not like I'm not benefiting at all. But mm. I have a role that I'm playing in this program, and yeah. it's different than the role that the audience plays. And, Definitely, oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I, I enjoy being able to just sit in the audience and listen to the speech and listen to the to the majlis mm. and and partake as well in the in, yeah. in this program and not just always be the one giving a speech and talking. And this That's gives right. me that opportunity where because no matter where I'm giving a lecture, this one's going to mm. be later and i'm going to be able to go yeah. there and i'm going to be able to sit down and say it uh sitan cosme mashallah his majalis are amazing and mm. i love listening to his majalis and it's just it's he doesn't do it every year but he's done it a few mm. years and, okay uh, it's really really good group of brothers who do this inshallah may allah give him the tawfiq to inshallah, continue definitely inshallah yeah so you know it's uh i think like you said you know it, it's different being on on the opposite side of the camera or the microphone, you know, mm. um, it's obviously when you're when you're lecturing that that's a responsibility that those certain people have, but you don't always fully appreciate the season that you're in, that that act of you know that that time that you're in. So when you're actually able to sit down and listen to somebody else talk, um, you're able to put yourself in that kind of in that zone in that mindset, you know. Mm. Um, it's just like I guess like with sports, right? You can if you're watching a basketball game or a, or a hockey game or a football game or whatever. Um, and you're playing the game. They're two different things, but you 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 enjoy both of them equally, right? If you if you love the sport, you lot you want to be out there and play the game. But sometimes you just want to kick back and watch it on television and, and watch you know professionals play, let's say, or something. Yeah. So you have a different experience on both sides. True, right? True. That's yeah. right. Well, Sheikh, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and thank you and having this conversation with us. We should be in contact yeah. more. I love talking to you and. Please, yes, definitely. You know, alhamdulillah. Yeah. This one of the one of the blessings of doing this is I get in contact with all the the mashayikh and the saadat that I haven't seen in so long, and get to have a good hour long conversation with them about all kinds of different topics. It's it's, it's a great thing. Inshallah. We'll Thank you. Hopefully, hopefully we can do this in person one day once this uh, once we're out of this COVID nineteen pandemic. It'd be Inshallah. nice to actually physically meet up again. You know, it's been 100%. a long time. So. Yeah, come yeah. come back out here to Sydney. I'm sure definitely, the definitely. I'd love you. to be back. Inshallah. Inshallah. Thank so, you. I was with one of the brothers who brought you over here today. I was I was with him, um, Mosin Al Bayati. I don't know if you remember him. Oh yeah, I remember him. Yeah. Yes. So he's a good brother, and I've seen. Yeah. So Alhamdulillah, it's good. All right, Sheikh. Now I'll let you go. All right. And thank Inshallah. you, thank you so, so much. much. Inshallah.
What? You haven't subscribed yet? Mate, get on the ball. Subscribe to the channel. Thank you.